Aloha nui kākou i ka poe ho'olohe i a kaleo o ka uluau. Wahi a ka hiko i ka ōlelo nō kiola i ka ōlelo nō kamake. Pela nō ki kanaka a pela nō ho'i nō ka poe manu. O ka ōlelo manu nō ho'i kākā kōkumohana e malio aku ai keia lā. The ōlelo nō iau that they just shared reminds us of the tremendous power of the spoken word, the mana within language, and a power that affects our lives, both humans and birds. Today we'll consider the role of language in native Hawaii bird culture. Welcome to Kaleo Kauluau. Our current season of Kaleo Kauluau highlights our deep connections with our avian cousins, the native birds of Hawaii. All season long, members of a group called Ahui Manu will be joining us to share about this connection between Kanaka and Manu. Ahui Manu is a group of people dedicated to our collective recollection and reaffirmation of our ancient and contemporary bonds with the Manu people, the native birds of Hawaii name. With each episode, our Meakipa will lift up the names, characteristics, and places that are associated with particular native bird species, including their appearance in an oli composed to celebrate each one and their relationships with life forms Mauka and Makai. Many of the birds are grouped together by their superpowers or by a theme, which each Meakipa will introduce. Today we have the privilege of welcoming Patrick Hart and Lisa Mason join us to share about the superpower called Liliuloli, with a special attention to the Alala, Akikiki, Akeke'e, and Anianiao. Drew, would you like to do the honors of introducing our first Meakipa? Hikino. Patrick Hart is a professor and chair of the Department of Biology at UH Hilo. He began living and working with Hawaiian birds as a graduate student at Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge and he's currently PI of the Listening Observatory for Hawaiian Ecosystems, LOHE, lab. Students in this lab work on a variety of issues relating to the ecology and conservation of our Hawaiian birds, with a particular focus on the use of bioacoustics to improve the way that we monitor trends in their distribution and their, their abundance. Patrick also hosts a weekly podcast called Manu Minute on Hawaii Public Radio, and he's actively involved in Ahui Manu. Mahalo. Now, would you like to introduce our other special guest? Hi, Lisa Kapono-Mason is from Hilo, Hawaii, and is currently a master's student in the University of Hawaii at Hilo Tropical Conservation Biology and Environmental Science Program. Her thesis work involves characterizing the vocalizations of palila, a critically endangered Hawaiian finch, and investigating how palila population decline over the last 60 years has affected the vocal culture of these rare birds. Mm, that's very important work. Let's go over to our guests now. Aloha, Patrick. Happy to see you again. Aloha. It's so good to be back. Yeah. Mahalo. And aloha, Lisa. Welcome back to Kaleo Kauluau, both of you. Mahalo. We're super excited to hear more about our Manu friends from both of you. So thanks for being with us again. It's a pleasure. We're excited to hear what you're going to share with us today. So e olu olu mai. Well, today we wanted to talk a little bit about the cultural change or cultural evolution in our Manu and maybe some of the parallels with uh, human language here in Hawaii and some, yeah, some of the relationships between the song of birds maybe and a little bit of, this, of the language of, of the people here. And then we'll yeah. share a little bit about our mele o kaleleane auna and some pauku from our mele and hopefully get to a couple kani manu for you. Awesome. Sounds fabulous. Yeah. Mahalo. <laughs> Where would you folks like to start? Last time I started at the beginning where the birds arriving. So maybe like we'll, millions of years yes. ago. <laughs> Could I do that? 
you know, when, when Hawaii Island first came out of the ocean, you know, so maybe 600,000 years ago, some of the first animals that came here were the, were the Manu and they brought with them a culture that they had, um, taught each other over the millennia from the other islands. Right. And so in our, in our lab, the Lohe lab at UH Hilo, we study the song of birds and most of the birds that we study, their song is learned from each other. And so we say that it's a culturally transmitted, uh, trait or character. When they're born, they learn all the different syllables um, and notes from the other birds around them, usually of the same species. And it turns out that the birds in Hawaii um, are have this incredibly complex language or vocal repertoire, I think relative to most other parts of the world, honestly, from what we're finding, our Manu here are, have this really Cult, really rich language that they've learned from each other mm. over millions of years. And so when the first birds came to Hawaii Island, they brought some of that. I'll just call it language. It's not really a language, but it, it's easiest to think of it that way. They brought that with them, many of them from Maui, because that's the nearest island at the time. Yeah. And so, and then, then that language changed and evolved here with this place. And so when we hear the birds singing now, we're listening to this really rich, culturally transmitted language or behavior that's just been, been, been part of this land since the beginning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, last year, um, my friend Tongaro, who we all know, um, we, we gave a, a co we co-presented a little bit about some of the parallels between, um, the language of, of the people of Hawaii and the language of the birds here. And, and just some of the ways, you know, that when the, the first Polynesian explorers, when they came to Hawaii, the first things they would have heard were the songs of the birds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tangaro really felt strongly that this bird song had some big influences on the development of the Hawaiian language as well. And so, we just wanted to talk a little bit about some of these parallels between the song of birds, um, you know, and, and Oli in particular in Hawaii. Um, so yeah, so that's what we were going to talk about today. <laughs> we just talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, so when we talk about culture, we're, we're using a, a more simplified uh, definition of it. And essentially we're referencing how socially learned uh, traits are passed down over time from one generation to the next. And that's pretty much how we, we think about culture. We can think about it in this way in human society. We can think about it this way also in our um, animal world and, and Manu society. So Culture in animals wasn't really recognized until more recently, I guess in the sciences, maybe about 30, 40 years ago. And it's only probably within the last 20 years where we see a lot more attention being paid in, in the sciences to 
um, cultures in animals and the phenomenon of how quickly you can have groups of animals um, changing essentially in terms of their behaviors and and socially learned characteristics um, within even a single generation as compared to let's say um, how long it could take for biological change and adaptation to occur. Do you think that from an indigenous perspective that the you know members of the animal kingdom would have be seen as having cultures too? Like it sounds like you're maybe referencing how the scientific um, community is kind of recognizing this in the last few decades, the, the idea of cultures within animals. Um, but do you think that an indigenous way of seeing that is a little bit different? Oh, I absolutely think so. Because, you know, I think from an indigenous standpoint, like we see things, I think, in a little bit more of a holistic way. And so it's, it's easier to um, kind of think about that dimensionality and the layers of existence that an individual has versus just from a biological standpoint. So there's, you know, a, a mindfulness there to acknowledge that complexity and that existence too, and how it can they're, change over time. <laughs> they're the Manu people. <laughs> the Manu people. Yeah. One thing we do in our lab is, you know, we look at just this richness, this, uh, uh, the richness and complexity of their vocal culture. And we look at some of the reasons for why it might be so rich. And some of the reasons have to do with geography, you know, across the landscape, um, their vocal repertoire and richness varies across the landscape. And also over time, it, it can vary a lot over time. And, and with the size of the populations that they live in. So we know that the, the birds in Hawaii used to be much more abundant, the honey creepers. Many of them have gone extinct, as we all know. And most of the ones that we have left are living at much smaller, much reduced population sizes than they used to. And so if you have a behavior that's learned in a group around you, each bird, when, it's, when it leaves the nest, it's picking up all these different traits. It's learning from all the individuals around it. It's picking up a syllable here, a song from this, from its mom, another song from its neighbor, a piece of a song from the neighbor two territories over. Um, but then if the populations decline, um, what happens to that vocal culture? They don't have as many individuals to learn from. And so one thing we've been looking at in the lab is the way population decline has affected um, the the behavior of the birds, this culturally transmitted song behavior of the birds. And so has it become less, less rich and less complex maybe than it used to? And so one, one thing we've been able to do is look at um, older recordings of, of some of these Manu that we have. Some We've gotten recordings from the 70s and 80s from various places, like from Kauai, from Hawaii Island, um, and we've been able when when the populations of these birds were larger, they had you know they were, there were more individuals for them for them to learn from, and we've compared this the richness of their vocal culture now to what it was before, and so we've seen some changes as you might expect in this. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if um, 
with the picture that you just presented, similar to people and the, the coming of different cultures to Hawaii, for instance, and learning different words out of our, you know, each person's normal language and then composing them into what we now have as like pigeon. I wonder if it's a similar existence for our Manu friends um, where, yes, maybe some of the language has been lost, but they've gained it and changed in a different way. Um, yeah, we can't always know what direction that change is, is pushing the, the population into or, or the, the group into or the society into, right? It, we don't know if that change is positive change or right. if it's negative change. We just kind of know that things are changing mm-hmm. and we expect things to change all the time, right? Through processes of innovation, just exploration and, and trying new sounds, um, making new noises, and there being maybe a response to that some, by somebody else in, in the vicinity. And there you go. You have a brand new a brand new call from a bird, right? Mm-hmm. So, do you think that bird do you think that birds ever pick up um, linguistic cues from non-native birds that they encounter? Because it seems like they would be sharing mm-hmm. space with non-native birds more and more. I think it's very possible um, because I know myself being out in the forest and trying to listen for certain birds, um, sometimes they, it seems like they're mimicking each other. They're Mm -hmm. calling like, like a canary or like a house finch and, oh my gosh, that was a palila. So, Mm. yep. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. So I'm just like kind of imagining um, what you're describing and thinking, because I never thought about this before, right? That actually the, you know, coming across other birds right like the the mom or the neighbor would actually like that would um allow a bird to like expand their vocabulary <laughs> and um and so i was just wondering with the changes that birds face right you know either i mean I, either they're like because of like climate change either they're having to like travel greater distances and then maybe encounter more or less mm-hmm. yeah or their their habitats are so small and then they're being compressed with other other birds or whatever, or fewer birds. I, I just, it makes me wonder if those things have an impact on the language piece that you're describing. Yeah. So like the, the like mm-hmm. the geographic distribution of stuff and changes in the, in the landscape. So I thought I didn't articulate that very well. So maybe I won't ask that, but um, <laughs> that was something that was on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we think of language as, I think of it as being a vessel that to carry information, right? Mm. It, it is the vehicle that that information is being transported. And so you have a sender and you have a receiver, right? Engaging in, in some sort of interaction. And then there's some understanding and then there's some, some possible behavior that comes out of that communication, right? And so that vehicle um, is n- not always going to look the same depending on where you are. Right, so that language is going to kind of have a different—I um, don't know how to say that—different characteristics. Uh, dialect, maybe. Dialect, or? yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to work out that that mm. analogy there, but basically, you know, language is a vehicle for that information to reside in, and it gets carried between individuals. Mm. Um, so it's always going to contain those things that are most relevant to those individuals to that group and a reflection of the environment. So as you get a different composition of individuals, 
you most likely are going to have different types of information that have become more or less relevant. And so you expect that change to happen. And then compound that by thousands of years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. And we can only understand this, you know, based on recordings that have been made. So, and recordings haven't been happening in, in Hawaii for, you know, more than 40 or 50 years. And so we can make comparisons the way they were then to now to get some, yeah, shed a little bit of light on this. But yeah, you know, the alala is a great example, I think, of what we're talking about. You know, um, the alala was abundant on this island. It declined for a number of reasons, some of which we're, we're not really sure about. Um, there was just a few individuals left into the early 1990s, you know, and it was mostly in in the South Kona area. And so they were the subject of a lot of research. And some of the researchers were recording them. They were following them around the, the last few individuals recording what they were saying to each other. And they kept these recordings as cassette tapes, um, dozens and dozens of cassette tapes. And um, they not only did they record them, but they said what they were doing in each situation when they would make all these different calls. And so this was a really valuable resource for us to look into. Um, one of the grad students in our lab, Anne Tanimoto Johnson, she looked at this for her master's thesis. And so she digitized all these old cassettes along with all the behavioral observations of these alala, the last wild alala that really just carried this culturally transmitted behavior. They were the last holders of that, you know, in the wild from, from hundreds of thousands of years of this language was, it was all just residing these last individuals and they recorded it. And then she was able to categorize all the, all the different aspects of the language that they were saying to each other. And so she had, she characterized it as like territorial broadcast calls, um, predator avoidance calls, um, contact calls just to stay close to their relatives. And she had like seven categories of different types of calls that they would say to each other. And then she went to the, to the alala that were in captivity just to see how they're, so she really kind of built up a good library of wild alala language and then compared that to those that were in captivity at Kauhoe Bird Conservation Center, where Lisa works, and just wanted to compare how how is this vocal behavior, this this repertoire changed? And she found some really big differences, you know. Um, part of it's just because they weren't in the wild anymore. So they didn't have, they had lost all of these very common territorial broadcast calls. Because if you're in an aviary, why do you need to broadcast your territory. And so they never did that. And it may have been lost because no one's ever heard it again. We played these back to the folks at KBCC and they'd, oh, we've never heard anything like that before, Mm -hmm. but they were doing that a lot when they were in the wild. And so there's a good chance that because it's, they're, they're learned from each other that if they're not teaching it to each other, that individuals nowadays probably never learned it. And so we'll never say it again, you know? So like similar to a loss of genetic diversity, when you have Mm -hmm. these small populations and very few founders kind of left to um, maintain the population, um, you you get a loss of like cultural information or what we would call memes, even um, these socially learned traits. Um, And where 
suspecting that this is continuing to happen, that as Alala continue to stay in human care, it's possible that they're they're continuing to um, have a loss of of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And this is possibly concerning, especially when we think about all Alala eventually going back to the wild. Mm-hmm. Will they know enough, have retained enough of that information about what it means to be in the wild from millennia of evolution to be able to succeed mm-hmm. when they are back in our forests. Would you be able to share a little bit about what, what has happened with those attempts to have Alala released in the wild and, you know, or what, what is it that they need? Is it in terms of like avoiding predators? Um, so there were a lot of um, really big lessons during the last uh, reintroduction attempts in 2016 to 2019. And there were a number of alala that were released here on Hawaii Island up in the Pu'umaka'ala um, area reserve, natural area reserve. And some of the um, things that we hope that alala will be able to do the next time they're released into the wild is to be able to procure food, to be able to identify um, proper food sources, native plants, native fruits, um, native seeds that they'll be able to um, uh, feed themselves. Enjoy life. (laughs) Enjoy life. um, uh, Proper places for them to place their nests, how to find a mate, um, how to maintain and keep that mate happy so that they'll be able to successfully breed and have offspring and continue their population out in the wild. Um, so things like that. We, we want Alala to, to be able to thrive and to be able to um, be crows. <laughs> part of that would include their language. And part mm-hmm. of that would be exactly their language. Did you mention avoiding predators? Definitely avoiding predators. That would be a good thing. So that was one thing that they were actually training them was they seem to have lost the ability to, I, to view EO, which would would have been one of their traditional predators as a threat. And so they wouldn't give off alarm calls to warn each Mm. other about an EO when they saw that. So that was part of the release program was they were playing, um, uh, alarm calls that had been recorded from the wild birds and then, sh- and then displaying an EO and then actually, I think that they would shake the cage or do something to indicate that it was a, they would bang on the cage to indicate that it was, this was bad. So you want to avoid this bird if you see it. And so part of that involved playing this alarm call that they would not have otherwise, mm. Um, given to each other. And it's possible that that negative reinforcement was not strong enough, right, to really warn them that, hey, this is a serious threat. Mm -hmm. This is a predator that could eat you or Mm -hmm. at least take you you out of a tree or do harm to you. So, yeah, you know, when these, you know, these birds are in aviaries, they're, they're very safe. They're very, you know, they're well cared for. And Perhaps there isn't enough stress in their life to prepare them for the reality of of being out in the wild, but who's to say? So future releases um, are planned for Maui, and there are no EO on Maui. So Mm. we hope that this will be one less obstacle towards Alala's success in the wild. Uh, Patrick, earlier you were um, sharing with us the different categories of bird calls that uh, the graduate student was Mm -hmm. able to um, come up with, 
how how deep or broad were each of those categories or how many different calls would have been in there? So out of, say, the six categories to seven, if you include miscellaneous, which we didn't know what that was, there would probably be about yeah six or seven different uh, call types in each category, maybe about 40 different, you oh. know, um, yeah, calls that they would say. How does that compare with other like cousins or relatives of crows or ravens? It seems to be fairly similar from what we can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to be fairly similar. Um, Crows are are one of the most intelligent birds out there for sure. Um, But there is a lot of other birds that aren't as intelligent as crows and ravens that actually have a much more complex repertoire. So I think it's also sort of the way they, they use it. Mm. as well, you know, in the environment, in the environment. So being able to match a vocalization to a behavior is kind of like the gold standard in (laughs) vocalization studies. And so if you, if you have that information and you can then make predictions and be able to like ask some really interesting questions, but a lot of times it's simply just trying to understand the breadth of the repertoire itself. So what are all the different types of sounds that these birds make? And so within a repertoire, you uh, birds can sing and vocalize in different ways. They can produce um, really short calls. It could just be a single note chirp, something like that. Or it could be um, a very complex bout that can go on for 20 minutes with multiple songs strung together and um, a lot of variation between how they kind of string those together, but also in the songs themselves. So sometimes it can get really complicated to try to figure out uh, all the levels that they are actually singing at, whether they're calling, singing, or belting, (laughs) being a little Mariah Carey. (laughs) (laughs) I do recognize what you're talking about with those long drawn out Mm -hmm. songs and and when I do hear them, I wonder, you know, what the message is that mm-hmm. they're conveying. Do you folks have any sense, especially with those long, <laughs> very long songs, what that might mean? Well, usually we say that the, the main reasons birds sing are to, you know, advertise their space or their territory. So either males sing to other males to tell them that they're there and don't eat my food, or they even probably more commonly sing to females to attract females. Um, yeah. So those are the two main reasons, territory, territory and mating, but then there's lots of other things too, but those are the biggest ones for songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that kind of gets into this other study that, uh, folks in our lab did. And that's, this was for birds on Kauai and, the, the folks that study the honey creepers on Kauai, so I'm talking about like the Akikiki, the Akike'e, the Amakihi, and the Anianiao. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of them there. The disease hadn't come up to the Alakai area yet, and so the birds were very abundant. And if you were, if you were studying the, the birds there, you would have been able to, if you heard an Akikiki sing, you'd know it was an Akikiki. If you heard a akike'e, it was very clearly an akike'e. 
And over time, the birds really declined up there to the point now where we only have, you know, a dozen, you know, fewer than a couple dozen left of a couple of those species, the Akikiki and the Akeke'e, maybe over a hundred. And, and the people noticed that they couldn't really tell the birds apart anymore. Um, if you go into the forest and you heard a bird song, you weren't really sure what it was. And so, um, people in our lab, like Christina Paxton and others, we got, um, old recordings again from like the seventies and eighties that were made by people on each bird. And we looked at the complexity of the song of each species and then compared it to the recent recordings of birds that learned their song with very few other individuals of their species around compared to before, but maybe a few other individuals, um, of other species, you know, so the birds learn what they hear. Typically they're sort of, I don't want to say programmed, but they're, they're more likely to vocalize songs of their own species. Typically it's the way their brains are wired. But if they're only hearing the song of other species, it might sound more like that. And so it turns out that, you know, based on a lot of work, it, the, a lot of bird song analysis from a number of students, uh, in the lab that the showed that, that not only had the songs become less complex, like very fewer, um, types of note, notes, structure, very less complex note structure, but they'd all converged to being more similar over time. And we think that was because the populations have declined so much that there's just very few other individuals around to learn from. And so they all are starting to sound the same, you know? So that was kind of an interesting, um, impact of population decline. Not only does it affect other aspects of their biology, but it affects their culture as well. You know, culturally, if you view song as a culturally transmitted trait. And for a lot of songbirds, that song learning period is very short. It's pretty much that first year of life, maybe. Mm, yeah. And then they go through a crystallization period where everything that they learned during their small kiki time um, gets pretty much sealed in. And they will likely not have the ability to learn um, much more throughout the rest of their life. So you can, it's not like they have their all their years in the forest learning from their entire community. It's, it's um, a very small window of time. So even more so, it's critical that they have exposure to as many individuals in their community to teach them. At an early age. At an early age. Oh, yeah. And then you have other birds that are still very abundant, like we have the Apapane, for example. So if you live in volcano area or in Pune, you probably hear a lot of Apapane song all around you. And so they're still, they're probably one of our most abundant birds left. And they have this incredibly rich repertoire. And it turns out that the Apapane you hear, so this is another study by one of the students in our lab, Paolo Ditzel. And if you hear like the Apapane, if you go to one place, if you go to a Kipuka on the saddle road, for example, um, you could stand in the kipuka and you'd sit there for maybe half an hour and you'd hear them say 10 different types of, we'll call it syllables or pieces of songs, maybe 15. And out of those 15, maybe two of them would be really common. Like maybe I like to say they have one, they go apapane, apapane. It sounds like apapane actually. Um, and you might hear apapane right there. And then if you went up to the next kipuka over, or even just went up a hundred meters in the forest, Maybe that 
that apapane would not be very commonly sung at all. And then you go another 200 yards or 400 yards, you would never hear that, but you hear something else that's really abundant. And so they still have a very rich vocal repertoire. It's almost, in some ways, almost unlimited numbers of uh, call types that they sing. And so they're really variable across the landscape. And so why is that? We still really don't even know mm -hmm. for sure, but it's, it's, it's just really interesting differences among the different birds, you know? Another one of your students, Josh Peng Ching, was one mm. of the first to look at different dialects and populations of uh, Amakihi here on Hawaii Island. And it's so interesting how they sing slightly differently across all the different moku of our island. Mm -hmm. Even within the same, the same moku, mm -hmm. they can be very different. So if you listen to an Amakihi in Puna, if you're down like in Maku'u in Puna down near the beach, um, they, they all have a trill, but they all have a trill that a trill is basically, they repeat the same note over and over. So it's just like, and so to us, the, the, the Amakihi trills sound the same. If you go, if you're at the bottom of Maku'u drive in, in lower Puna, you go to the top of Maku'u, you hear the Amakihi there and it sounds like, but if you look at that on a spectrogram, like on the computer, actually there, and you look at the shape of the, the notes in the trill, there's some real clear differences. And so the ones down at the bottom of the road all are the same shape. So they're, they're different looking than the ones even at the top. And so those are differences that if you're really good with your ears, you could probably pick those up, but to the birds, they're listening to this all the time. Right? So most likely these are clear, um, they're not dialects, but they're indicative of where the bird lives based on what they say, mm. you know, and that's probably because they're learning from the individuals around them. And so things change a little bit over time, but then they just keep teaching each other those changes and then slowly they, they become different across the landscape, you know? Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So, so a spectrogram is a model that visualizes sound. Um, in a two-dimensional way. And so we look at this model or this picture, um, looking at the frequencies over time of each of those signals. So um, when Pat is talking about the spectrogram, we're, we're literally looking at how that sound's frequency changes over time. And then we can measure the complexity in terms of how that frequency changes in terms of the, the lowest frequencies to the highest frequencies or the, the um, bandwidth of that signal. We can also count the number of uh, notes, count the number, number of syllables, and then also count all the different song types that that bird sings. So these are the, some of the different ways that we can measure differences. Mahalo. I guess um, there was maybe bringing that back to the a little bit of a comparison between bird population and the people population and how that that that's mm. interesting as far as. Yeah, you know, and this is some of what Tangaro was finding, but he he played recordings of Oli that were done some really old, like maybe from the 20s or 30s. And he was just looking at the style of the chanters then, and just 
drawing parallels to the way the styles have changed compared to now. And there's just, it's very similar to the way things happen, have happened in birds. You know, I think there's been a little bit of a bottleneck, of course, where they have, there's been fewer individuals to learn these different styles from in the human chanters and it, this, similar things have happened in the birds. And so, um, I thought those were some really interesting observations that, that Tangaro had. Yeah. It's interesting to make those parallels in the vocalizations of people and, and Manu and just the similar situations as far as not having access to those who could teach mm-hmm. and yeah. see how it changes things. Yeah, there are there's so many parallels between the Manu world and the human world, especially here in Hawaii. And we can think about a lot of the pressures that have affected these changes over time being very similar. For example, uh, Manu have experienced habitat loss and deforestation and um, factors that have caused their ranges to shrink. In a human population here in Hawaii, in terms of our you know, Kanaka Maoli population, we've had also a loss of land, you know, and, and loss of attachment and, and connectivity to, to our lands. Right, mm-hmm. as a people. And so that's definitely a big part of it. And we have um, in the Manu world, uh, they face disease, right? And we know historically here in Hawaii, you know, native peoples all over the world even have experienced um, population loss because of bouts with disease. Yeah, introduction of mm-hmm. foreign disease. Mm-hmm. And we think about competition in the, the Manu world with invasive species and and things that bring in bring in those diseases, um, that that invasion is is real, right? They feel it every day, and we can think about in our human world too. Like, what are what are the things from outside Hawaii that might be suppressing our culture, mm-hmm. you know, or the resurgence or rediscovery of our culture? And so I see a lot of parallels, and that's why I can empathize with our Manu. Well, and then that brings us to um, some of the work that you folks at Ahui Manu are doing to help maybe uplift our Manu friends. So Pat and I are going to share um, some excerpts from a mele that was composed within this last uh, year and a half or so by a group of Manu enthusiasts uh, called Ahui Manu. And the mele is called Okalele Ane Auna. And we're going to share two pauku about two of our Manu friends. One of them is the alala that we've been talking about, and the other one will be the akikiki. So in this mele, so in each pauku, we are associating one of our manu friends with a creature from the kai, so a fish, and also a plant from the land. These associations are meant to pull strength and draw draw strength from those creatures' abundances in the ocean and along the landscape to help to support this particular manu. Mm. <laughs> Mahalo Nui for for that. That was beautiful. Um, the, what are the, the the final lines of that pauku? What is it that you folks are saying? 
our chanting? It's the it's a way of securing the bird that's potentially not doing so well right now with um, a fish from the ocean and with a plant from the the mountains that 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 are more stable and more secure. So it's a way of securing them together to go forth and do well. Yeah. Mahalo. And there's also an invitation in many of the pauku in this mele to incorporate the kani of the different manu. So that last line, oka alala, auna lele apaa, alala, is one of yeah. the calls of the alala. Ah. So we can exaggerate that a little bit. <laughs> and so that's, you know, like in the akikiki one that we were. So yeah, for each of the pauku, generally we we do the, the kani of the manu as well. So in this pauku for alala, um, we first mention me'e, the constellation, which is fixed in the high heavens. So we're securing um, our perspective um, to, to that star, which is really beautiful. Um, and then we are asking, who is that crying? It is the alala keiki. And so we can hear the new life in the forest calling out, right, that I've just born. And then we secure our alala with the aama, their little coastal crabs, and the uh, ie ie, which was an abundant food source um, and plant that alala are usually associated with and, and might, have been seen in the forest. And might need a little bit of help uh, on its own, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. so, For sure. So together ie, they ie. can all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I, I you know, alala is... is cry right alala mm. and so it's another connection between birds and, and human language that that was brought into that pauku yeah yeah so we're so the akikiki lisa listens to them every day and but they go kiki 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 yeah or something similar to that just like that oh boy <laughs> you got it perhaps that's why they're called akikiki ready okay mm. Hanauka akikiki, kiki 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 kiki, kia ia e ka u kiki noho i kai, ola maoloa i ka umikoa noho i uka, o ka akikiki au na lele a paa, paa hia. Hola. That was good. So in this pauku, we mention the ukiki, which is the snapper, which is very abundant food fish in the ocean. And we also pair akikiki with the umikoa, um, which is the lichen that grows in the koa tree. Mm. And then it seems to like to forage in. And used for nest building. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of good uses there. Mm. Nice. Where do you folks see um, these studies moving forward as far as um, looking at the cultural evolution or change of these bird species and are you folks um i'm assuming more recordings are happening mm. as we go well the only reason why a lot of these studies are even able to happen today is because people years and years and years ago paid attention and collected those data mm -hmm. for and recordings for some reason right and i think we should continue to do so to continue to try to capture um, what's out there now 
just in case, you know, um, but also to learn from it. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing to continue to, to record our Manu. Yeah. I mean, I think our goal is to basically help is to help the birds increase in abundance, right? Through per, perhaps like through this latest IIT technique with the Wolbachia mosquitoes. But, but my hope is to live to see the day where we see the birds repertoire or the, ver, the birds language increase again in complexity the way it was, you know, and just, and have their populations increase along with, with their, with their behavior. So that would be amazing to see something like that again. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for everyone in Hawaii to be able to spend time with our Manu friends and to sing with them. Are there ways or, or um, different resources that you might want to mention for people to check out to help our Manu friends or get more information or learn more on the efforts that are being made? Perhaps a website or... There's this terrible podcast called <laughs> Manu Minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's all lies. <laughs> well, there's the Manu Minute podcast, but really, you know, like the bird, the birds, not mosquitoes uh, program right now. Um, I think the more we can support uh, efforts to reduce mosquitoes, particularly the Culex mosquito in in areas where the birds are declining rapidly. I think that's really the best thing we can do right now. So, um, you know, there's the, the birds, not mosquitoes website. There's, uh, Brett's Brett Mossman's Hawaii birds past present, where you can get a lot of really great information on how to, you know, help care for our birds and spend time in the forest. Mm. And go and listen to them. And just it's a big one. Just listening, yeah. Because birdsong is all around us, and oftentimes we we are too busy to listen, you know. But there's really so much information there that we can learn from by listening to the birds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this whole season of our podcast is really dedicated to um, strengthening our relationship with the Manu people, so... Those things mm-hmm. that you folks have mentioned will definitely go a long way in terms of, you know, solidifying mm-hmm. that relationship, that Pilina with them. Yeah. And I, you know, I think oftentimes w- where we live in the lowlands, we don't have the native birds, but really, I mean, making solid relationships with the birds that we have around us is really important because that teaches you how to respect the, the, nat- the ones that we have left in the uplands as well. You know, they go hand in hand. Well, mahalo nui to both of you. It's been an amazing experience again. So mahalo for sharing your your knowledge and expertise and um, the bird calls and the chat and everything that you shared today. We appreciate it. Mahalo nui as well. I really appreciate all of you. Mahalo nui. This was fun. Yeah. Mahalo. Mahalo nui to our meokipa, Patrick Hart and Lisa Kopono-Mason. That was instructive to learn about the complexity of native bird songs and calls and some of the trends our Manu experts have noted over time too. Yes, we continue to learn more about the parallels of Manu culture and our own. Something we might not have thought about includes our language. With that mana'o, please be sure to check out our blog at hilo.hawaii.edu slash and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for more. That's it for now. Mahalo for listening. Ahui ho. Aloha. Aloha.